Welcome to Laser Focus, a podcast that takes you on the journey of discovery with the leaders that are changing the world with new design and revolutionizing how we think of advanced manufacturing. I'm your host, Renee Youssef, CMO and brand disruptor at Velo3D. Today, I'm speaking with General Ellen Pawlikowski, retired four-star general and the third woman to achieve the rank of general in the United States Air Force. She provides expertise on strategic planning, program management, logistics, and research and development. General Pawlikowski is nationally recognized for her leadership and technical management acumen. I'm looking forward to speaking with her about her impressive career and gain some insights on her thoughts on the future of additive manufacturing, the military, and STEM. So General, many of our listeners are obviously fascinated with space and the moon landing was such an impactful moment in our history. Can you share with us what it was like for you to witness that? I was about seven years old when it happened and I do remember sitting in the living room. We had a very small television. Last night, something like 125 million Americans and uncounted millions in other countries saw a unique combining of romance and technology. At that age, I didn't really completely appreciate what was going on, but my dad started crying. And so it, which is not something he did very often. So I thought, wow, this must be something really special for this to get him as emotional as he was at the time. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. But I do still remember that very moment when Neil Armstrong took that first step. Did it have any impact on your future and the decisions you made around like maybe getting into engineering? I actually didn't get involved in the space community until much later in my career. Frankly, I was in my 40s that I really got excited about seeing things in space. I was more interested in other things that were going on and things that were on the ground. What did make you pursue a career in engineering? My decision to go into engineering was actually one that was more directed by my father. I'm the second of four girls. And my father, who was a firstborn American, very strongly believed that his children needed to get a good education. And particularly as women, very far ahead of his own time, he wanted all of us to be able to take care of ourselves. He had seen his father pass away when he was in high school and his mother struggle with being able to support herself. And so it was very important that we had the skills so when I was in high school, I actually wanted to be a journalist. I was editor of my high school newspaper and assistant editor of the yearbook. And so that was what I was set to do. And my dad said to me, no, you'll starve to death. You need to be able to take care of yourself. You're really good at math. So you should go be an engineer. And initially I resisted. But once I got into engineering school, I realized that I really enjoyed exploring and seeing new things. Now more on the technical writing is that I really just enjoyed it so much that I made the decision that my dad had a good choice when it came to my future career. That's great. What about the Air Force? What drew you to the Air Force? Well, I was fascinated by the military during the time when I was in High school was, frankly, at the end of the Vietnam War. And there was a lot of 
very negative feelings about the military. But I also had seen what I thought was some very positive things. And so I've joined Air Force ROTC more out of curiosity than anything. And once I got involved in ROTC, I found that I enjoyed the camaraderie. I enjoyed being part of a group. And being a woman in an engineering school, it was not unusual at all for me to be the only woman in the room. And when it came to ROTC, I felt like I had a whole bunch of brothers there with me because we operated as a family. And then when I saw that the impact that I could have in terms of being part of something bigger than myself, being able to see technology come to bear to protect our country and being part of that, making that happen was important to me. And so I decided I would continue in ROTC, but my original intent was I would do four years and then I would get out and pursue something else. And I kind of took a little bit longer than that to actually leave the Air Force. I stayed for 36 years instead of just four. Wow, that's amazing. 36 years when you were supposed to be for four. So you mentioned the New Jersey Institute of Technology. And when you were there, you were part of the largest women's class to ever come in. That was in 1974. And women in STEM are still underrepresented. Do you think we need to do anything differently to welcome more diversity in STEM? I think that we as a world in a global environment need to be able to have access to 100% of our population, not just 50% of our population to solve the world's problems. And until we reach the point where women are represented at the same level as men, if not higher, then we have more work to do. Currently in the United States, more than 50% of the college graduates are women. But we are still in the 20s to 30s in terms of the representation of women graduates in science and engineering. And it starts at the beginning. I have two granddaughters and a grandson and I take every opportunity I can to expose the eight-year-old and the six-year-old young ladies to what science is all about and to give them an opportunity to share that same excitement that I had. I think a lot of it has to do with two things. One is exposure to young women. And the second thing is to make the science and engineering workforce more compatible with people who are focused on a better, what we, we used to call quality of life balance. They sacrifice their family lives. And frankly, this is not an environment where you are going to sustain people, whether they're men or women, that want to have a more balanced and want to have a family. And you live in an environment where everybody is staying there till seven or eight o'clock at night. And that's the expectation. And frankly, women leaving the engineering career field and science career fields has a lot to do with many of them are married to other scientists and engineers. As a result, if you collectively decide you want to have a family, you both can't keep working 14 hours a day. So 95% of the time, the woman leaves. If you look at any curves for particular engineering, 
there is this steep drop off at about the five-year point. And that I attribute to all the people that went to school to get engineering degrees and they just don't like that environment. And so they'll go off and do other things. We did a study to try to understand why so many people were leaving their career field, men and women. We opened up the child care center 24 hours a day. Everybody benefited from that, right? Not just the women. Because guess what? Men want to be dads. They want to be able to spend time with their children just the way we do. But we make different choices than they do. So we need to find ways to encourage and interest women to get into science and engineering. And then we need to do things that make it an environment where both men and women can prosper and be able to have a full life up till the time when they choose to retire. So you said that additive manufacturing is a game changer. Can you speak a little bit more about how additive manufacturing is going to improve our military capabilities? Well, additive manufacturing is such a game changer across the whole spectrum of bringing new technology to bear for national security. In the beginning, additive manufacturing allows the design engineers to produce structures that we can't make anywhere else because of how fine and precise the structure has to be. In addition, it provides you the flexibility to adapt and change to the design quickly without having to build something and test it and break it. You can do all of that cycle much quicker. Then you go to the other end of the spectrum where we have to, in the military, to maintain airplanes. We keep airplanes forever. We have B-52s that are going to be 50 or 60 years old. And in these airplanes, there are parts that break. In order to repair these airplanes, we have to have those parts available. The traditional way of doing that is to buy them and leave them in a warehouse. And you have to guess or predict which parts are going to break and when you may need to replace them. And with additive manufacturing, we can shorten that cycle too. We don't have to buy hundreds of parts and leave them in a warehouse. We can produce the part when we need it by just having the materials available and the software designed for the additive manufacturing tool. So when you think about all of the time and effort spent in buying parts and stockpiling them and shipping them around the world, the opportunity to be able to do all these things more quickly and at a lower cost is just really exciting to me. What do you think it will take to have additive manufacturing go mainstream? And what are the obstacles that people need to overcome to understand the real opportunities of additive manufacturing? We have to continue to expose people and educate people on the benefits of it. The idea that additive manufacturing is going to completely replace traditional manufacturing is just a non-starter. The bottom line is for many, many things, it's not cost-effective and it isn't faster. But for many of the new areas of innovation, particularly in space, there are just so many things that you can do with additive that you can't do elsewhere. The uh, intricate design that's involved in building the rocket pieces, that is where additive manufacturing really can shine. So we have to continue to work to expose those that are making these machines, making these rocket engines, making these parts about the benefits of additive. And then once you understand the value it is to 
the commercial market in terms of speed, in terms of the efficiency and productivity, then I think it will grow. So you've touched on additive for space. What are some of the barriers for the use of additive manufacturing for aircraft? Additive manufacturing at large for aircrafts can provide a number of opportunities when we talk about being able to produce small numbers of parts. And this gets to the in the sustainment cycle where you don't need to have the parts in supply. So that's where I think a key thing is. And then the second part is in those parts of aircraft, such as the engines, such as the heating and cooling and air processing systems where you need to have potentially maybe very thin cooling channels where those are very difficult to either cast or to be able to solder or to weld. Added manufacturing really provides a great opportunity. But in order to do this, we have to be able to demonstrate the airworthiness of additive manufacturing parts. And that's one of the big stumbling blocks today because there is a very disciplined approach to determining that what's in an airplane is not going to cause a safety hazard to those involved. So one of the challenges and opportunities that I frankly see for a company like Velo3D is the opportunity to use the software and the data that we collect during the manufacturing process to actually form the basis for certifying airworthy parts. Because that data, if we can demonstrate that data can be used to identify if there's any defects or problems in how the part was manufactured, then you completely streamline how you have to test parts to get them certified as airworthy for flight. You mentioned Velo3D and some of the benefits and opportunities for us. What was it about Velo3D that got you excited to join the board? I was excited about Velo3D because in my heart of hearts, I'm a geek. I love technology and I have been following additive manufacturing for probably at least 10 years now. I was very excited when I was in the Air Force, particularly in the use of additive to overcome some of the sustainment problems we had, saw some of the great things that were done. But I also, in that process, had understood some of the challenges that additive provides. And so in my first engagements with Benny, the CEO, and we talked through some of what Velo was doing, and I fired off to him a number of the questions that I had seen as challenges, and I was just really impressed. And so I was really excited that I saw the approach that Velo was taking to additive as a very substantive technical breakthrough, even within additive, that would enable us to do many of the things I talked about. So that's what attracted me to Velo3D was an opportunity to see a really amazing technology that could solve a lot of challenges that were out there and with a leader that really understood what the challenges were and how to go about solving them. So General, I wanted to ask you about space since we've sort of touched on it a few times. Some see space exploration as resource-driven, while others see an expansion of civilization's capabilities. In your opinion, why is space exploration so important? I think space exploration is so important in the fact that we have so many opportunities to improve our life 
the ability to go out and mine meteors and to take advantage of many of the different materials that are available from space. That's a huge opportunity there. Take advantage of zero gravity to improve the way we manufacture things, to improve the way we process things. We do a lot of things on Earth to overcome the force of gravity when we're manufacturing. When you're trying to evenly paint something and it's all dripping down to the bottom because we've got gravity on it. And then the third part is many of the things that we are developing in order to leverage space and to explore space provide huge opportunities for us on Earth. We talked earlier about my experience with the lunar landing, but I also experienced many of the benefits of that whole Apollo program. Many of the materials that were developed to provide heat resistance. The panels on the shuttle were a major breakthrough for being able to do that. And then these things have benefits here. Any opportunity that gives creative and innovative people problems to solve that then can be used elsewhere, I think is a great opportunity. So when you look at the market that's growing for commercial space now, it's just amazing. I equate where we are today when it comes to commercial space. It's like where we were in the time between World War I and World War II when it came to aviation. In World War I, there was no real civil or commercial aviation in this country. The only ones that really used airplanes were the military. And during that time period, because of investment by an organization called NACA, which is NASA of today, by the way, was investing in civil aviation and then the outgrowth of commercial companies, it became by the time we were in approaching World War II, we had a commercial aviation capability in this country, which, by the way, the military was able to leverage in terms of the developments that happened during World War II. So now you look at space today, whereas even as early as 10 years ago, space was predominantly controlled by government entities that were in space. There really were no true commercial companies. Now, today, we are reaching an area where we have just thousands of satellites that are not owned by any government. They're owned by commercial entities such as Starlink. And you now have Amazon and Google and everybody is getting into that. And now you, if you listen to the Department of Defense, they're saying, hey, we need to leverage this innovation that's going on in the commercial space business. So it's much like we saw during that era between the two world wars. So I'm excited about the whole area of space because there's just so many opportunities to mature technologies that will be helpful to us and to expand our opportunities to take advantage of what's out there beyond just this uh, wonderful world that we live in. Can you share one piece of advice or insight you've received or learned during your career that you think our listeners could benefit from? I think in an overall approach to life, the most important lesson that I ever learned was in first grade from my mother. I was 
fairly young when I went into first grade. I was only four. I remember coming home, and this is how important this was to me because I still remember this today when I was only four years old. After about the first two or three weeks of school, and I was in tears. And I said to my mother, Mom, I cannot do this. I can't. We're supposed to read, and I can't read. I just can't get it. And I don't want to go back. I just don't want to go back. And she looked at me and she said, did you do the best you could? If you did the best you could, you don't quit. You keep on doing what you need to do and the best you can. And if it's not good enough, you make them tell you to go home. You don't go home. And I think for me, that's the best advice. And frankly, I've thought about that advice many times, not just about my career, but as a mother, as a caregiver for my parents, just remembering that all you can expect from yourself is to do your best. Because every morning you're gonna have to look yourself into the mirror and say, did I do my best? And if you did your best, then everything else will fall into place. So that's the best advice that I was ever given. And I've given that advice many times in my career. That's actually really great advice. And it gave me goosebumps hearing that story. What's next for you? Well, over the next five or six years, I want to continue to, I have two primary objectives. First and foremost, I want to be a good grandmother. So I want to continue to be there for all three children. I want them to know me as a person. And so that will be the focus. I can actually sit there and explain to my now four-year-old grandson what resiliency means and buoyancy means. And he actually listens. So it's a lot of fun. And then the second thing is I want to continue to be involved in making technology work for us and being able to be involved with companies like Velo3D where I can get my hardware fixed and I can enjoy seeing technology really do wonderful things because that's what really my joy comes from family and from being able to make technology do wonderful things. That's what's next for me to keep doing that as long as I possibly can. That's great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can our listeners learn more about you and your career? If you Google me, you'll find that there are a number of articles and interviews that I did, particularly in around 2018 when I retired. And there's a couple even YouTube videos of speeches that I've given all the way. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a great fun. It was such a pleasure to speak with General Pawlikowski and hear more about her incredible career. The fact that the General didn't start to be interested in space until her 40s really shows that learning is a lifelong experience and it's important to keep learning throughout your career. Thanks to the General's interest in communications, she's often tapped to speak on her experiences. I personally grew up thinking that university was a prerequisite. I didn't actually realise it was voluntary because my parents instilled so much importance on higher education. They would tell us stories about having nightmares working in factories because they didn't know English. My parents are Egyptian, and Egyptians love three things. They want their kids to be either doctors, lawyers, or engineers. So I was definitely encouraged down one of these paths. My dad would show me his bruises on his hands and say, you don't want to grow up like this. You need to get an education and do really well for yourself. So I think when General was talking about how her dad influenced her decisions, that really did resonate a lot. When I hear younger people today saying they don't need an education, 
or they want to start thinking about dropping out of school, I really wish I could tell them to stick it out. There are definitely people saying you don't need a degree to be successful. But in my opinion, university gives you skills beyond just education you likely wouldn't get otherwise. Hearing from General Pawlkowski really can serve to remind us that both formal education and lifelong curiosity can equip us with invaluable transferable skills. Thank you for listening to Laser Focused. You can find new episodes every two weeks on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and leave a review to help more listeners find us. I'm Renette Youssef, and this has been Laser Focused, brought to you by Velo3D, where together we innovate without compromise. 